Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundit Society. I'm your host as always, Adam Proctor. Joining me on the program is Daniel Denver. Many of you will know him from the Dig podcast that is sponsored by Jacobin Magazine. We're going to be talking about the recent tragedy in Parkland, Florida, and uh, a number of pieces that have been written by Daniel and others talking about the importance of gun control and violence reduction without increasing the carceral state. Daniel, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you are uh, the host of The Dig. That's Jacobin's podcast. You are a writer in residence at the Fair Punishment Project, and you write on matters of immigration and criminal justice. We're going to get to more uh, on that later but tell me a little bit about this podcast. I mean, yours is one of my favorite podcasts out there. It's one of the few that I'm able to listen to every week you have on really important, amazing guests. How did you get into that? We, we started this around <laughs> the same time, you and I. And you yeah. got that Jacobin bump. Uh, yours is a very, you know, you have a very uh, responsible journalistic approach, and I really admire it. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about how you uh, got into that. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I did not ever really expect to become a podcaster and to make a good chunk of my living off of Patreon um, and become just sort of like a living embodiment of an Onion article about journalism circa 2018. <laughs> but that's what Join happened. Join my Patreon, bro. <laughs> yeah. Check me out. Um, <laughs> the way it happened in my case is that I was a local journalist in Philadelphia for a long time and the at the Philadelphia City Paper and Alt Weekly there which shuttered um, shortly after I left. And then I was briefly at Salon, which was in its own long-running death spiral, though it still exists, and was laid off there in like October or September 2016. Mm -hmm. And I had, a year prior to that, piloted a podcast with a friend, my producer, um, Alex Lewis, and... It's that pilot is still there deep in the archives as the first episode. And uh, it, I, I way overthought what I was going to do, had like all these different interviews, was trying to make it into this <laughs> kind of more like storytelling based yeah. type thing. And I was like, oh, that's hard. And then I got distracted by a lot of work. And then when I got laid off, I was like, oh, I have some time on my hands. And uh, then Trump was elected and decided to give it another go and i was like basker who's the jacobin editor maybe this right, could be right, right. the first jacobin podcast and he was like sounds good but how about you do a few episodes first implicitly <laughs> oh you had to do a tryout <laughs> he made you work for it uh, i mean yeah. fair fair enough i absolutely yeah. like i didn't know if it would suck so it's fair enough that he didn't <laughs> know whether it would suck it's and, folks out there in uh, you know in, in audience land in podcast land who have never done a podcast before. It's one of the most terrifying things you can do. You, you sort of you sort of start and you think to your. I mean, all of the you know your 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 self doubt and uh, and all of your you know um, you know they all come to the surface. You know, let's just say that uh, it's it's not an easy thing to do. So kudos on that. How did your first uh, couple episodes uh, come along? Um. 
well, though there were some major technological <laughs> hiccups because I had as there will be yeah. literally no clue what I was doing. And <laughs> I think I tried to squeeze it wasn't I don't know if my first up one of my first episodes I tried to squeeze like like three guests on it and some of their lines were messed up. One of them had a landline that wouldn't accept a call from an unknown number, which the Skype thing I was using was an unknown number and it wasn't going through. And I was like staring down at my questions while really stressing that the interview was just about to fall apart. So it took me quite a few months to not like walk into the studio terrified before beginning an interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is why I don't do real interviews. I don't have questions. I just have uh, little fireside chats. I think the question and answer format is a really high stakes kind of thing. It's a high stakes project. I just kind of like to shoot the shit with people. So I really do admire your approach. Those pointed questions are difficult to write and script and pull off. And, and, and you know, uh, it's, it's, it's terrifying. And I think folks should, uh, Folks should know that you, you make it look easy. It is not easy uh, by well, any stretch of the I, imagination. I admire your ability to casually shoot the shit. It's not <laughs> one of my fortes. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, uh, different strokes. We get, we have a, a nice division of labor out there in the socialist podcast land. So check out The Dig. Support his Patreon. And uh, while we're at it, you should probably support my Patreon as well. Head on over to www.patreon.com slash deadpundits. Uh, join there for $5 or more a month and you will get access to all of the B-sides and bonus episodes. Daniel and I are going to be doing a B-side as well. We're going to dig more into his experience as a podcaster and a member of the socialist left. We like to let our hair down and uh, and and go, go big on the B-side. I think Mike Beggs said last week that uh, the A-side is the coffee version and the B-side is the whiskey version. So... Uh, that sounds like my morning and my evening on a, a day <laughs> every day. <laughs> no, no comment. I'm not going to uh, either confirm or deny that to be true for my own life, uh, though I am slugging down a ridiculous amount of coffee as we speak. So let's get into it. Everybody check off that B-side, by the way. It's coming. We're going to be talking about some great stuff. Let's get into the meat of the episode. And I wanted to start things off kind of fun and loose. Uh, just because, you know, that's a nice thing to do. And, and, and also moreover, because, you know, today's topic is a little somber and it's, it's serious. Uh, we are now a couple of weeks in, uh, out from the tragedy in uh, Parkland, Florida, uh, where 17 high school students and teachers were massacred by a gunman, uh, who by all accounts never should have had access to weapons, much less assault weapons. Uh, he was a troubled uh, individual, very volatile and it was known to many people in the community that that was the case. So expectedly, this has sparked a mass outrage. It's been expressed in a number of ways. The students have waged a heroic struggle, uh, forcing their way into the state legislature, forcing their way on into the uh, the national uh, scene. Uh, you know, this, I, I was uh, just walking through a coffee shop the other day and you know, I happened to glance at somebody's laptop screen and this just kind of looked like a normie, right? A normie person. And, and they were watching uh, one of the one of the students give an impassioned uh, plea on social media. So this stuff is really it's really penetrated the mainstream in a big way. Uh, so you've you're, you've recently wrote a piece uh, that's going to be in these times magazine uh, talking about gun control. What's your entry point in this? You do write quite a bit about criminal justice and mass incarceration. What, what do you see as your main intervention point here? Yeah, I mean, the gun debate is not something that I 
am particularly expert on. So I come to it through writing about criminal justice and mass incarceration for a number of years. And I started looking into this in 2016 when I wrote a lengthy piece for Jacobin called A Better Gun Control that folks can look up online, which was just making the case that we're going to get nowhere with the current push for gun control if we don't reckon with the gun control regime that's already in place. And that is a regime of criminal laws and sanctions that lock up huge numbers of Americans disproportionately black and disproportionately poor for possessing firearms that for the iconic white heroic vigilante NRA member is a bedrock constitutional right. And so, and this is rarely acknowledged in gun control debates that, that liberals and conservatives for decades have worked hand in hand to arrest and prosecute and incarcerate people on gun charges. And that is really one of the central building blocks of mass incarceration. And that's rarely acknowledged. It's also one of the key pretexts for invasive policing. I can't think of a more prominent example of excessive mass policing than the NYPD's former mass stop and frisk program, which, you know, I can't think of another another department program in any city in the country that's gotten more justly critical attention and was finally curbed by a federal judge and then de Bla- after de Blasio and then uh, de Blasio took office. Um, it's kind of been rebranded in a sense. You might, you might say it doesn't have the same sort of uh, uh, policy uh, justification, but uh, certainly that, that type of uh, uh, policing is still in existence. And I, I suspect this is where you're going. So I'll just make it a little explicit for the audience uh, who may, may have not read your article. Folks should check out the show notes. I'm going to post this up. It's called a better gun control. As you mentioned, it was in Jacobin uh, a couple of years back. Um, and uh, you write there that uh, police stop and frisk dragnets have received widespread criticism for sweeping up people for drug possession and open warrants on mass. What gets little attention is that stop and frisk is premised in practice and in law. Uh, see the Supreme Court's Terry v. Ohio on searching for guns. So tell us a little bit about how stop and frisk gets its legal justification in the Supreme Court ruling. That's all about, uh, you know, searching perps for guns. Yeah, well, the the Terry v. Ohio ruling um, was decided in 1968. And it was this this key ruling that allowed police that said police had the right to perform a, a frisk of someone that they had they had stopped to ensure that they weren't armed because it's a matter of the police officers um officer safety and that they did all they needed was 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 reasonable cause to believe that the person might be armed that they did not need um any sort of probable cause or or a warrant so the the possibility of someone having a weapon is a is a key pretext for voiding normal constitutional rights in this case the fourth amendment right against unreasonable search and seizure interesting and and uh yet that often in the debate over stop and frisk 
went unmentioned, even though if you listen to Michael Bloomberg back in the day explain why they were doing it, it was to find illegal guns. They weren't finding that many. They were mostly finding people with a little weed in their pocket. It was a horribly invasive, racist and abusive program that fueled mass incarceration and made people in poor communities of color in New York feel like they were living in a police state. But we need to recognize that the pretext for it was what um, my my friend Ben Levin, who I uh, whose law review article really formed uh, the the basis in many ways of my Jacobin piece, calls the war on guns. Um, and it shares, as Levin argues in his law review article, a number of uncomfortable similarities to the war on drugs. And, you know, and I'm sure we're going to get to this. I, th- that does not mean by any means that I am pro-gun or against gun control. But it, this is a reality that we need to start with. Right. And a lot of this, uh, I think, uh, the hypocrisy, the racialized, I should say, hypocrisy, uh, the racist hypocrisy uh, was brought to light uh, in the uh, just horrific and tragic murder of Philando Castile, who was uh, killed by a police officer in Minnesota uh, in the summer of 2016. Uh, and uh, Philando was a, a legal gun owner. Uh, he he had a, a concealed carry permit. Is that correct? If I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he was carrying a gun that he legally possessed. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know on top of my head if he had a permit to, to carry. Right. But in, in either case, uh, his mother, Philando Castile's mother, uh, famously blasted NRA chief Wayne LaPierre, who we're going to be talking about in, in just a moment, uh, saying that, uh, you know, there seems to be a very explicit racial bias in terms of who the NRA is willing to defend when it comes to uh, people's rights to carry guns without being harassed or killed. Uh, by police and other authorities. Um, She famously said, my son was one of the good guys, but him being black, obviously they didn't see him as a good guy, as in the NRA. The NRA has yet to say anything about my son, she said. And sort of that gives lie to this idea that the NRA exists to protect, uh, you know, the constitutional rights of all Americans. It very clearly has a a racist and a political agenda that we're going to get to in just another moment. So, yeah, the NRA has a commitment to this figure of the the vigilante, the, the you know who's standing up to the street thug, the only good guy with a gun, the only way to stop a bad guy with with a gun, as they say, is a good guy with a gun. Hmm. And in this sense, like the NRA, ideologically, is this key link between the. The, the carceral state and this repressive system of policing and mass incarceration on the one hand and this this vigilante white citizen standing up to the black criminal street thug on on the other. And there are a lot of contradictions therein in the NRA holding those two ideas at the same time, especially now that. Wayne LaPierre has joined the Trump administration uh, in accusing the FBI as, you know, being basically headed by socialists committing to overthrowing his administration. But 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 there but there is um, it, it, it is not about uh, the right to bear arms for for everyone. It's about the the right to bear arms for people who who look like Wayne LaPierre. And that's why the NR, that's why the NRA has been mostly in support of measures to crack down on so-called bad guys with a gun. 
Right. I think, I mean, your, your emphasis uh, in, in, in your uh, earlier Jacobin piece and your piece in, uh, in, in these Times magazine is really important, I think, because it, it, it emphasizes the fact that there is an existing uh, gun control regime that we shouldn't ignore and that we really have to contend with as uh, principled leftists and socialists in order to figure out sort of what comes next. And one of the important issues there is, is, is the way in which a lot of well-intentioned reforms uh, end up – um, you know, bolstering the, the, the system of mass incarceration and the power of the carceral state. Uh, one of the things I want to talk about now is, you know, the, clearly we're, we're not talking about this for nothing, right? I mean, the, the thoughts and prayers have, have – uh, that, that rhetoric has really incensed and inflamed a lot of people in the progressive and socialist left, I think. Uh, we're really sick and tired of, of our, our figureheads and politicians sort of sending up thoughts and prayers and doing nothing to, uh, to curb these, these violent mass shootings. Uh, the students at uh, the high school um, in uh, Parkland, Florida, it's Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, have uh, spoken out, as I mentioned. A lot of really intelligent, well-spoken students down there. I mean, just we can, we can just say that from the beginning. I mean, what's been your perception of of these? I, I want to call them kids, but they you know they they deserve better than that. These are these are. You want to call adults. them kids, but when you when you recognize the fact that they're actually crisis actors, then uh, <laughs> um, they're actually thirty-year-old women uh, and men, I should say, uh, dressed up as high school students, very it's, convincingly. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, these they actually kid- uh, carded in Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Uh, And he said, hey, kids, (laughs) these kids are absolutely remarkable. And it's not a unique insight on my part to say that their intervention in the debate seems qualitatively, decisively different than anything we've seen so far after previous mass shootings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's unclear where that's heading, but it does seem different. Right. I mean, I, I just want to lead with that, lest I be accused of not recognizing or acknowledging uh, the, the real, you know, the, the exceptionalism of these students. I mean, they, they're just really impressive. Uh, they are obviously uh, educated and, and, and implanted in, in broader political struggles and, and broader political rhetoric. That I have to say, you know, when you and I were in high school, I, I just think very few high school students had access to, the, to those kinds of uh, you know, even rhetorical strategies. I think the internet has a lot to do with that. I really, I really do. You know, I, we talk a lot about the harmful influences of social media on the left and the way these little digital enclaves are produced. But clearly, it's also given a, a wider range and in, in, in age range, indeed, uh, access uh, to, to, to these politics. What do you make of this generation? I mean, I certainly don't want to play out this kind of like the kids will save us. I mean, I think we have some marked criticism that each of us will, will make on that later on in the show. But but what do you make of this generation? What 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 is what is uh, how, how is their political ideology being formed and what, what kind of world are they coming up in? Well, I think something that you hinted at there is interesting, which is for all the really bad things that social media does to society, and there's all kinds of research that rings true to me that it can make people sort of depressed, be constantly hitting refresh on on Facebook or or Twitter. In in this case, I, it it seems quite possible that the the practice people have gotten presenting themselves before an audience you know maybe that's come in come in useful because they are remarkably articulate and bold about right, you know right. very confident when, very confident um facing down marco rubio and 
and humiliating him on on CNN, which is a clip everyone should should look up if they haven't seen it yet. Um, but in terms of the the ideology, I mean, I think that we're at this point in 2018 at the end of this this long arc that began with the the Columbine shooting, which was in. 1999 i believe yeah i think right and these, these students were were not yet born you think about it you know that was that was uh you know 18 19 years ago uh, most of them uh were, were just uh you know they were they were a glimmer in in their father's eye yeah and and, and so so i so i think it's a, a a process of 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 political learning that has resulted in them being able to to speak clearly and most importantly just plainly to 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 the absurdity of 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 this being normalized mm-hmm. people walking to schools and massacring students cuz when columbine happened i i clearly remember being in high school myself at the time in the school assembly that we had i think the very same day that it happened i think classes stopped and we had an a, an an assembly and at that at the beginning so if that's the beginning of the arc at that point we as high school students had no clue how to think about it because nothing like it had really happened ever and i imagine that was even more so the case for the students who were in columbine high school in colorado and well if if folks will recall uh you know this was sort of taken up uh by the uh, you know, liberal uh, bourgeois reformers, the social and moral reformers, as a way to to sort of scapegoat oh, the tra- and lash the trench out coat, at like the trench coat mafia, the trench coat mafia, and and by extension, like Marilyn Manson. I mean, he's, yeah. he's widely quoted as saying like Columbine spelled the end of his career. Like he was finished. I mean, there's no way that he could possibly come back from being associated. Yeah, and like every goth, these- every goth kid in the country was put under you know, school surveillance, right. High levels like a potential of next, next people who shooter. were already oppressed and socially, uh, you know, socially, uh, lower on the, on the low levels of the social rungs of, of high, the hierarchies in various high schools, which is a really painful and alienating place to be, uh, were, were made to be, feel more alienated. Right. And so there was, I mean, you know, I wasn't reading the socialist press, you know, when I was in my early teens, uh, certainly not in those days, although it's important to say, there are some teens who are doing it now, which, Hey, the times are a changing, but not to brag, yeah. but I, I was, but yeah. you, you know, you and you red diaper, baby <laughs> bastards always <laughs> are always out there to make, but, you know, the late, the late comers late blo- uh, feel late, bad late, about ourselves, late socialist bloomers. But yeah, I, I, I entirely <laughs> agree with what you're pointing at, which is that yeah. the, the response there was, was, was so entirely wrong on all counts. Um, yeah. Though they're, they're, they're still very much today. I think, Similar, like descendants of the, the the heirs to that that take the take you know the take of the time being that it's the alienated bad child who is into you know a dark counterculture that's responsible. Right. I think the heir to that is Dana. I think it's pronounced Lash, not Loesch. I hear people keep saying Loesch, but I heard on NPR Lash, and I'm assu- hmm. assuming they they have someone who would research that. But Dana, Perhaps. whatever her name is, the um, NRA spokesperson mm-hmm. said, you know, has emphasized as has the the NRA that all this issue is about 
really is that this monster right right had had a gun the individual and, moral monster trope yeah when i think that it's stigmatizing individual mental illness for something that is right, clearly right. such a social pathology is not only obviously self-serving for the gun lobby but is also just a profoundly neoliberal individualizing atomizing response that obscures what is clearly a social pathology right it really stigmatizes mental illness of all sorts i was very careful in my intro there i thought through this very very carefully fortunately because i don't always do that but i thought carefully (laughs) and i was i was sure not to describe this gunman as as mentally ill Uh, i instead instead described him as volatile which he was and, and yeah. not, not all people who have mental illness are volatile. Very few are, in fact. And so, I mean, I think that's an important distinction that you just raised. Well, and a, and a, and a caveat here that ties into the broader discussion we're having about, about law enforcement, the carceral state, and gun control is that law enforcement received numerous highly detailed, credible tips on this kid. And apparently nothing or close to nothing happened, which I think is a, a reminder that a bigger carceral state, a bigger national, just like a bigger national security state, does not necessarily lead to a more effective one for those moments when we actually depend on law enforcement. So right, right. when when cops or the NSA or the FBI are making their case for more powers to surveil us, to search us, to detain us as as people inside this country... Um, we need to remember that that doesn't necessarily make them better at doing what we want them to do. In fact, right, right. the needle in the haystack theory would, would, would suggest that the bigger the haystack gets, the harder it is to find the obvious, the needle. And in this case, I haven't researched it super closely, but in the, in the reporting I've seen just in, in the New York times, it seems like that should have been a pretty obvious needle. All of the people literally calling and being like, this kid is stockpiling weapons. I'm worried he could be the next school shooter. I mean, right, right. I don't know. I mean, the, the students, <laughs> uh, many of the students who have spoken out have said, you know, we've we've been aware of this this person for a long time. He has terrorized us, and, and nobody was surprised uh, when he was named as the shooter. But you raise an interesting point. I want I want to touch on a little bit, and we can delve into this. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the idea that th- these dragnets, these mass dragnets, these uh, by by the the security state apparatus, be it you know the carceral state, the police state, or the military, uh, you know, intelligence uh, as wings of the state, uh, that these dragnets will will make us safe. Um, you know, you go back to the Red Scare, you know, this McCarthyism that, that's, that swept up and forced federal employees and contractors and civilians of all types to, to fill out questionnaires about their previous political ac- activity and haul them in front of, uh, you know, the House uh, Un-American Activities uh, Committee and, and all the rest of it. Uh, it ruined lives and blacklisted people from Hollywood and, and, and so on and, and academia and so on. It, that, I mean, it was a massive dragnet. It caught astonishingly few, quote unquote, communists. Or spies, I should say, more explicitly. And, and so there are many, actually, some scholars out there say it didn't catch any. Um, not to say that the spies weren't there. Now, whatever we want to say about that is another story. I, I'm not going to take a position on you know the, the morality of that. But yeah, I just listened <laughs> to the Chapo episode with uh, Will Menneker talking to his father about his grandfather about yeah, Will Menneker's right. grandfather, the 
the Soviet spy. But <laughs> yeah, that was great. Actually, it coincided well. I just read the second Red Scare wow. uh, by Landon Stores, which is a really phenomenal book. Folks should check that out. I'd like to have Landon on the show sometime. But it, 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 it coincided with that uh, Chapo interview quite well. So I mean, there's these massive dragnets that 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 just uh, you know uh, terrified people and set the stage for this kind of uh, anti-socialist, anti-communist uh, sort of uh, cleansing, quote unquote, of of the left and of the the, the labor unions. It caught almost no spies. So, I mean, the bottom line, it did a lot of things. It performed a lot of political, uh, ideological functions, but it, 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 it was incredibly uh, inept. In because it's purported because its purported function obscures its actual function. Exactly, exactly. And that's the same thing with the carceral state. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Well, that's why I wanted to dig into to exactly what you've just said there. I mean, look at uh, you know the NSA, CIA's total information awareness that people like Glenn Greenwald have made us so uh, aware of. How many terrorist attacks have they actually prevented before you know uh, before the fact or whatever you, want, you know, have you you know? So it's a really important thing uh, you you uh, you raise there. So. I think you're in these times piece really gets at this this underlying ideological and political uh, control uh, purpose, as, as we might say, being kind of like uh, smug academic theorists, you might say, what's the meaning of this? Right. I mean, you know, the meaning being that it's 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 uh, deeper, more fundamental than the stated aims of the project. Yeah. As as a smug uh, academic theorist who gets by with only a, a BA, I will, um, <laughs> <laughs> but pretends as though some it's otherwise. So I think there's a lot to think through, right? And mass shootings are when we think as a country the most about gun violence, and I that's entirely understandable. They're these spectacular, horrific events, and in a very good way, like in this case, it brings attention to what I think is, you know, like an irrefutable fact uh, as or in, in a hard to refute contention as advanced by the mainstream liberal gun control move, movement that I don't disagree with in the slightest that AR-15s have no place on American streets. You know, I'm I'm not mm-hmm. um, I don't have a have a quarrel with that that argument at all. I would love to see them gone. Um, but these mass shootings also and, and the coverage and debate that surrounds them also obscures a lot of really important things. One is that this is not the typical incident of gun violence in the United States. More, what a typical incident of gun violence looks like are interpersonal neighborhood feuds in Baltimore or the south side of Chicago, suicide, domestic violence. So any gun control debate that's not looking at those issues, which are more likely than not to be committed with with handguns, mm-hmm. um, not AR-15s, is is missing something key. Um, and then thinking more generally, I think talking about gun violence without thinking through the larger culture of violence that so thoroughly pervades the United States is really missing some of that violence's underpinnings and if our goal is is peace and fewer people dying then that not only are we missing the underpinnings of of things like school mass school shootings but we're just looking at a narrow slice of the violence when if we want to reduce violence overall we need to look at the big picture of violence and that big picture in the united states includes mass policing it includes mass incarceration, and 
it includes the the global warfare and arms distribution that is the basis of American empire. And I think these things are inextricably interrelated and that, um, you know, I don't think it's just uh, making a cute theoretical point. Um, I, I really don't think we can have peace in this country until we think through all of that. And I think the way forward is to start having a conversation about what fully disarming, not fully in terms of there's not a gun left in the United States, but a more, but fully in terms of its extent and scope, what fully disarming the United States, state and citizen alike, mm-hmm. what that might look like. And some things that would include would be a largely disarmed police force, which is the norm in many countries. Right. But to get there, to be honest, we're going to have a have to have a much less armed populace as well, because the two go hand in hand. Absolutely, absolutely. One of, one of my concerns there. I mean, I, I had on uh, Delegate Lee Carter, Virginia State uh, Delegate, uh, who's famously uh, DSA uh, member, DSA supported, and he was uh, swept into the legislature in the wake of the 2017 elections, which saw many progressives and open socialists across the country elected. And, and uh, you know, so I, I think through the, the practical uh, policy implications of something like disarming the police. And what scares me there is I fear that if we, we as socialists, we as progressives, uh, you know, uh, lobby and, and maybe even a politician sort of puts forward a bill where that happens and we, we disarm the police and then say the police respond to a hell, I don't know, a bank robbery or something. And, and, and the assailants uh, have uh, AR-15s with armor-piercing bullets. That's going to give the right the perfect opportunity to go, aha, see these people? They're taking guns from our cops and they're, and, they're, and, they're, and they're killing people because of it, right? And so there's a certain kind of like order of operations yeah. that really does need to happen here. That's not to say we shouldn't aim for the ultimate disarmament of the police, but there really is a kind of more holistic kind yeah. of it can't happen. organic It can't happen tomorrow. To happen. It absolutely can't happen yeah. tomorrow. And I, I, I think about it like nuclear disarmament, something that unfortunately is making no progress um, <laughs> right now and is utterly terrifying. The Union of Concerned Scientists, I think it was just a few weeks back, put us just like a few clicks, you know, two I think it was two minutes away from uh, from midnight on their, uh, what's that clock? The, the, Cl- the doomsday, doomsday clock. clock. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, kind of, could, kind of a strange thing in and of itself. But but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's horrifying for sure. Because the U.S., both the U.S. and Russia are committed to committing to just, you know, massive investments in their nuclear mm-hmm. stockpiles, which is terrifying. But anyways, my point being that the the model of of nuclear disarmament where 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 two sides or more come to the table and agree to mutually disarm that's the only way that works and i think that's the only way we disarm american society if american right. if, if all sides begin to reduce their stockpiles so there's no to use a horrific uh uh metaphor there's no silver bullet here yeah. but there is but I, but what my article what my piece is arguing for is how we should think about a path forward. 
Right. It's very, it's very uh, comprehensive and intelligent. I just have to say, my God, if we could get this piece in the hands of these passionate uh, young activists down in Florida, I mean, man, you know, a lot of people, uh, Nevada Damajimdar has a piece out in Jacobin that, that uh, we'll talk about more ex- explicitly here later. That's called The Socialist Case for Gun Control. And what she and others have pointed to quite rightfully is that this could be a kind of the kind of issue that uh, radicalizes uh, the youth in Florida and elsewhere across the country, uh, but but you know that's I think that's not an inevitable process. There are there are uh, contradictory trajectories that could come from this, many of which that we've already talked about, and we'll we'll point out more here later in our discussion. But uh, certainly, if they uh, broaden their concept of the source of the violence in the in the the kind of political project that's required to overturn this that you present in your article, I mean, my God, will be will be better off. Somebody, if if anybody knows those kids, uh, again, I'm calling them kids, but they're uh, you know impressive people. Email them this article for God's sakes. <laughs> Put it in their hands. Uh, so you lay out a really comprehensive case. Uh, we've talked about the mass incarceration component. Uh, you know, gun are involved in every operation of the carceral state. You write, uh, the disarmament of America can never be a reality unless its politics and economy become deeply democratic and far less repressive. And so that certainly indicates a broader kind of socialistic turn in uh, the American state and society. Yeah. And and Wayne LaPierre, um, the I think his official position is vice president, but the, the, the figurehead, the longtime figurehead leader of the the NRA made it very clear that he sees his enemy as as socialists in his recent CPAC address. And I highly recommend that yeah. that listeners out there take a Xanax and settle in for the full, I think, like 40 <laughs> minutes of his speech, because it is utterly like you really can't depend on The New York Times re- <laughs> reporting on right wing speeches. The same goes for Trump speeches to get what's most interesting about them. Yeah, right. You right. really That's have true. to That's listen so to them true. for yourself. Like, really, it's you painful. have to see. You have to hear it. Yeah. For the, the more adventurous out there in our audience, drop some acid and, and uh, oh, enjoy <laughs> enjoy forty minutes of Wayne LaPierre. Uh, you know, talking. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, you're right. Uh, you this you is might never really come back from that trip. <laughs> you may not. I don't know if I ever. I want to endorse that. Uh, I, I take no responsibility for the uh, long term or me- medium term effects. But uh, you write in your piece, and this is a draft, so the language to be clear to the audience, the language may change in the final. Uh, piece that the, the, the in these in these it may get better <laughs> i don't know this was a really uh, eloquent uh, sort of formulation i hope they keep this in full but you're right wayne lapierre's speech in cpac of course uh, is a rosetta stone through which one can decipher how american gun culture has become the fulcrum for libertarianism white nationalism xenophobia patriarchy cop worship, anti-intellectualism, celebrity resentment, militarism, apocalyptic fundamentalism, and the carceral state. That is, I mean, I mean, you, 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 that's a laundry list of, of, of just atrocities that, that really have uh, cohered as the political ideology, you know, par excellence of the libertarian, uh, you know, arch conservative wing of the Republican Party that is currently in power right now, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and it's all there in that CPAC speech from from Lapierre. In that one speech, every single thing on that list that you just read, it's there. And my my central point is that guns are inextricably this is are an inextricable part of this libertarian ethos in the U.S. Yeah. that prizes 
self-reliance and eschews any sort of collective responsibility for our well-being. That's why LaPierre always talks about the Second Amendment as the amendment that guarantee uh, the that that as being the right that guarantees all other rights. Hmm. That's what that's why he says that socialists want to eliminate our firearm freedoms so they can eliminate all individual freedoms in a country where there is so little in the way of substantive political and economic democracy. Mm-hmm. Many people look look to guns as their bedrock protection where power the only place where where from where real power from whence real power can be derived and so thinking through the ideological battle over guns we can't think about that in this narrow technocratic manner Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know or policy wonk matter we have to think about the the ideological framework within which gun culture is embedded. And that is this libertarian ideology that is simultaneously vigilante mm-hmm. and extraordinarily militaristic and supportive of the carceral state. There's a lot of contradictions therein, but, but, right, that's, right. but that's what Small state, like. big state, right? Yes. Low government intervention, uh, supreme government intervention, you yes. might argue. I mean, what's more uh, intervention and interventionist than the, than the fucking military, for God's sakes? Uh, the, the power to control, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of, of hapless, uh, you know, citizens. I think you know this. This raises really important, uh, uh, you know, issues around the role of the state. Uh, clearly, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, I was reading your piece and thinking through the implications of this. And this gun culture is just really kind of like an exemplar of of, of the neoliberal ethos, which is to say that guns in in this age of kind of like uh, uh, both real and imagined threats to your personal uh, safety. Guns have uh, really become these individual survival projects that that really do kind of uh, map on to the way that neoliberalism relies on these individual survival projects, um, which issue any kind of collective or social responsibility. The state Uh, can't do anything to keep keep you safe, but all of these individuals, if they all had concealed carry permits, well, they could keep themselves safe. Right. It's about my family, myself, uh, which which, of course, you know, this day and age, uh, all, all the divorced dads out there, you know, protecting their families, which they have, uh, you know, completely ruined and up over time. <laughs> these failed dads out there who are joining the NRA uh, in large numbers. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's an illusion, right? It's hearkening back to this reality that they don't have themselves, many of them, I would say. And it certainly doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't adequately characterize the the reality of of most Americans. Yeah, I mean the statistics are pretty clear on what a gun in the home, what 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 dad having a gun in the home is likely to lead to. It's not likely to lead to you uh lawfully shooting a dangerous intruder. It's likely to lead to a suicide or a murder. Yeah, right. 
I think you know one of Chapo obviously Chapo Trap House is an, an insanely uh, popular. They get more listens in one week uh, than I probably will get in six months. Uh, so I don't need to I don't need to pitch Chapo. They can pitch themselves. But but one of my favorite things about that show is how they really expose the real kind of like almost like Freudian uh, uh, Freudian desire for blood. Uh, you know, by by some of these conservatives and libertarians in, in, in some of their fictional accounts, uh, these terrible, awful prose, you know, that they 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 sort of heap together in these fictional accounts. As Chapo always puts like, it, all, 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 the, all these dudes who just close their eyes and imagine themselves being tier one operators. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so the, and so there they are with their gun and they're in the they're in this back alleyway in this urban you know environment in which almost none of them live in actuality. Right. And they're facing down. This young thug whose pants are sagging and, you know, his his dad's probably in prison and his mom is, you know, on crack and 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 the kids on rap music, the kids he's high on rap music. Yeah. And he's got his Jordans laced up and and all of these just like cultural, you know, cultural lifted from uh, like the mid 1990s. <laughs> yeah, just totally. Like he's, he's listening to Chris Cross and he has his pants on backwards. But but it really does jumping, reveal the jumping. Kind of, yeah, he's jumping, jumping. Uh, he's dodging. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we've had enough fun there. So I mean, but that's that's really there really is this kind of like libidinal desire to just slaughter the 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 urban uh, black and brown specter, this threat to society that exists out there. And I think Wayne LaPierre's ideology is is a really powerful one there. And it maps this. So you have this kind of like classic. You know, Jim Crow segregationist, uh, you know, white flight era ideology that has mapped on to a neoliberal ethos of individual survival projects, right? I mean, because, I mean, if shit, not to say anything good about the Klan, but if the Klan was nothing, it, it was certainly a collective project. But nowadays, these violent, racist, you know, uh, libertarians can't even rely on collective projects any longer. You know, uh, they, they, they need to sort of barricade themselves and their homes against the thugs out there in the world. Um, I mean, w- w- one thing that we'd be re- remiss not to discuss is Trump's comments. It's Tuesday, the 27th right now. So this would be yesterday, the 26th. When uh, he started, I think, in a conversation with govern at a meeting with governors, ruminating uh, upon this this uh, what he would do if he had been there and how yeah, he would he would have run into the school. Yeah, tell, tell, tell the audience what happened there if and folks haven't heard that. Um, he he just said, you know, I think after deriding this, um, I think he's a sheriff's deputy who stayed outside the school rather than confront the shooter who says that's because he thought that the shooting was coming from outside. But anyways, after Trump, you know, Trump has really enjoyed calling this this cop who stayed outside a coward and contrasted what would be his own behavior during that situation, (laughs) that even if he did not have a gun, that he would (laughs) bravely run in to save the children and confront the shooter. I mean, talk about this, like, projection of a violent dominant masculinity from a man who, you know, tricked his way out of, you know, enlistment in the, the Vietnam war. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, right, right, <laughs> something. Right, right. 
It's just, uh, yeah, I mean, I, we can all sort of imagine ourselves around the water cooler or something, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, uh, that's probably not even a, a good a good uh, metaphor or example. Maybe like in the gym locker room with all of these like baby boomers talking about what they would have done had they been there or whatever. It's just, it's it's a performance to, to sort of, uh, to yeah, yeah to, to solidify this kind of like, neoliberal masculine ideal which 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 almost let's be honest i mean we're, no, it, no one really possesses they go to work every day and they kiss their boss's ass just like everybody else's and <laughs> trump certainly does not uh exude any any type of uh sort of heroic uh nature of any of any sort so i think we've really we've broken down the logic undergirding the kind of wayne lapierre nra political libertarian political project your article covers that really really well but i want to spend the last 10 or 15 minutes of the show talking about a much more contentious issue on the left, which I see is kind of like the flip side of what we're talking about right now. And the flip side insofar as it doesn't overturn the underlying logic of the position. And that is to say uh, the pro gun left. And I don't just mean, you know, kind of like, you know, well, maybe we should think about taking away everybody's guns. I mean, like uh, saying that, you know, gun ownership is the bedrock of of socialism and liberation. Uh, What do you make of this argument? Yeah. One thing I make clear in my piece is that I, I, you know, I'm not arguing that that the object of a gun is entirely fully determinative of of some sort of political outcome. Um, not entirely. I believe that that there are some inherently troublesome properties to to guns, to for for sure. But mm-hmm. but I I highlight that let's say in the late nineteen, uh, with the defeat of Reconstruction in the South, that a Klansman with a gun was a very different thing than a black person seizing a gun to defend themselves and their family against that Klansman. Right. Right. Certainly, certainly. It's not, and um, I'm not not a fan of violence, but I'm also not a pacifist. I believe that it's necessary. In You're not drawing a false equivalency there, as my uh, friend Michael Brooks of the Michael Brooks Show uh, would often says uh, 12 times during uh, his, his his podcasts. Yeah, it, <laughs> but no, it's no, important, right? There, yeah. there isn't that false equivalency. We're not saying that a, a Klansman with a gun is the same thing as Harriet Tubman with a gun, for example. Yeah, nor am I making a transcendentally moral argument for pacifism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that said... I think it's rather far-fetched, to put it really mildly, to argue that guns in the United States of 2018 will provide any sort of path towards radical social, political, and economic transformation in the United States. I think that's been true for quite a long time. Um, I just did an interview that's going to air soon with two uh, scholars, Brandon Terry and Tommy Shelby, who have a new book on the political philosophy of Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they write a lot about how King's debate with the black power movement over violence was a lot more nuanced. I think that it's often caricatured as being in retrospect. Questions that he was asking were like, so when you provoke the state to to violent repression— how exactly are you going to survive that? Who's going to win in a majority white society? He had a very pragmatic concern about how that was going to work out. One that mm-hmm. I think was was a fair fair one to to ask. And right, who would right. bear the brunt of that repression? For would sure. it be, be you or the communities that you're hiding in? 
for sure. For sure. Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I want to know how you got uh, Tommy Shelby of the Peaky Blinders uh, on your podcast. That's an impressive <laughs> feat. And I didn't know that he uh, made a second career out of uh, studying uh, Martin Luther King. That's quite impressive. Uh, it's good to see that he's turned over a new leaf, though, I should say. This is uh, the professor of African-American <laughs> studies and philosophy at, at Harvard. But I don't know about I, I did not research his cv about uh to determine whether um ah so he's not uh tommy shelby of uh, peaky blinders fame from the turn of the 20th century then um he he's he seems a little younger than that perhaps yeah not like not like a super young guy but like (laughs) younger than that you you say he didn't he's not a world war one vet for example uh perhaps a uh a former uh, traveler (laughs) <laughs> anyway, all right. Uh, I'm a huge Peaky Blinders fan. I just had to go off on that tangent. That's a really, but uh, yeah. G- going back, you, you raise a really important argument there uh, about about the legacy of gun ownership and the importance of guns in a broader political struggle that that uh, Dr. King saw as ultimately, you know requiring that we transcend these individual survival projects into more social and collective uh, demands on the state and in society. I mean, uh, you know, Dr. King famously argued that, you know, any, anyone in the South, you know, he, he had a shotgun behind his uh, behind his front door, you know, and famously. Yeah, he was uh, not a pacifist. He, uh, he, he, he did believe in nonviolence for moral purposes, but also for very strategic purposes strategic, that come right, from the, right, ma- right. the majority question. That, right. that black radicals have always faced in this country, which is that black people are a small percentage of the overall population. So how is it that you go forward and contest white society and contest the state in a way that leads to liberation? Right, right. And so I think that there's a way in which the gun becomes fetishized in this kind of like aestheticization of radicalism and politics that my show has talked about quite a bit. Uh, folks will know because I bring it up almost every damn week. But uh, I love this man. Cedric Johnson was on my show. We talked about uh, his essay that was, that was in Catalyst uh, Journal called The Panthers Can't Save Us Now, uh, which is kind of like, uh, you know, a critique of the aestheticized radic- faux radicalism, you might say, of the black power era that has, uh, you know, sort of been introduced into our contemporary moment with like say Beyonce at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago and uh or 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 the black power salute you know uh, that that shows up in uh you know movements like Black Lives Matter and that's not to say that these aren't important legacies and that we don't have really important lessons that we could learn from these people but I think just sort of um, importing their this gun fetishization is is probably not the best path forward. Uh, so, so what do you make of, of of those types of arguments today? I mean, what what, what kind of alternative as socialists, uh, sh- uh, you know, anti racists should we should we uh, fight for? I I can feel that certain thrill from witnessing historical footage and imagery of armed resistance. That uh, I'm going to mispronounce this word, but that like frisson of right, right. of of seeing, um, you know, Black Panthers march into the California State House, armed and profoundly upsetting and terrifying all of these racist white politicians, and and I can think of countless other historical examples. But that is, I agree with you entirely that we can't aestheticize these complicated moments in history, whether American history or history of anti-colonial struggles elsewhere, aestheticize them and then remove them from their historical contexts, and then import them into our own moment as though they have self-evident meaning and logic. 
Right. I mean, I think, you know, with the Black Panther movie sort of gaining, uh, you know, sweeping the country and the world, its popularity and breaking box office records. I mean, it's an interest. It's important parallel. You might say, like, there's nothing wrong with being really moved by uh, the, the the visuals and the, the, the kind of uh, the ethos and the, the, the affective dimension of Wakanda. Right. Uh, as a society, as an experience of uh, the sort of like black excellence and, 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 and goodness and in contrast and stark contrast to the way that African-Americans are portrayed in other, uh, you know, cultural presentations as broken and, you know, coming from broken families and all the rest of it. But there have been, there have been some other criticisms of Wakanda, right. As being this kind of patriarchal society, certainly being anti, anti-communist, anti-socialist. Well, this is something uh, that Brandon Terry and Tommy Shelby, Shelby, um, that I, that I spoke to them about and that they, um, that Brandon and, um, and Chad and a Threadcraft, another scholar, co-author an essay in this book on King's political philosophy on gender and King. And I think it's in that essay where they talk about, even though King himself had, in especially earlier in his career, some pretty retrograde gender politics, he arguably had the much more feminist take in his debate with the Black Power movement in his critique of its of, of certain Black Power activists constructing an ideal masculinity around violence and guns. Um, right, right, and he was right. very critical of that. Right. And as I say, this is a, in some senses, I'm going to get a lot of shit for this, but so be it in some senses. And I think Dr. King would probably agree with me here. And oh, that's a dangerous thing to say. My God, don't ever say that people. I take that back. But in any case, I'm, I'm ventriloquizing, you know, zombie, uh, MLK here. But I think, I think I'm probably right about this, that, that what we're talking about here, what we're criticizing very carefully here is really, in some senses, the flip side of the Wayne LaPierre uh, fetishization of guns, and, and, and in terms of uh, being the kind of like representative of of their political ideology. And so, we're going to talk a little bit more about this on the B side. We're going to get more explicit in in terms of our criticisms. But I want to finish off. Uh, your piece is a really fantastic piece. You argue as uh, as, as Slavoj Žižek, one of his most, I think, uh, useful lines for all of the other stuff that he says. Whatever you think about it, I've got fans and haters alike uh, in my in my audience. I know of Žižek, but one of his famous lines. I can't remember what happened, but something happened. I want to say may it it might have been in the in the in the um, in the wake of the Great Recession and the sovereign debt crisis in Europe. He said, you know, the, the famous line is. Uh, don't just sit there and think about it, do something, right? Well, he says perhaps we should invert and I mean, we have some kind of creative inversion in the way that Zizek always does infamously. And he's, you know, maybe, maybe we should say, uh, don't just do something. We should sit here and think about it for a minute. And your piece is, is really an excellent, uh, uh, you know, it's an exemplar of, of that, that idea, I think, in many ways. Thank you. I, and I do think, to be clear, that there are some straightforward things. I would, I would love to see assault weapons, Gone, for example, but we have almost as many guns in the United States as we do people in the United States. And so we're not going to solve this overnight. And I think to do it, we need to think about radically reducing violence and arms in the United States more generally. And that require a more profound transformation of this country and the criminal justice system. In the case of criminal justice, very much it will require a reorientation away from emphasizing criminal sanctions against illegal possession of guns, which is the current regime, towards restrictions on the production and distribution of guns, which means the people who are making and selling them. 
the companies. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we long ago uh, regulated, uh, you know, toy companies that were putting lead in the paint of their toys. Uh, you know, we don't let uh, kids play with, you know, I don't know, uh, like uh, TNT Barbie, right? Barbie or, or, or like Meth Lab Barbie. Right. Like these kinds of these kind of products are like ridiculous and they're, you know, they they would be incredibly dangerous to any society. Right. Just letting kids. And our current approach is to prosecute mom for buying that, you know, uh, TNT Barbie instead of instead of telling Mattel, no, you can't make that actually. Wow, you just killed that, man. Wait, you just extended that metaphor and nailed it. Uh, <laughs> well done. Uh, I'm not even mad. That was uh, that was very well put. I wasn't sure exactly where I was going with that, but you killed it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just it's it's just it's 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 insane if you extend that kind of uh, logic, uh, you know, into into society at large, right? I mean, I, you know, they they don't put. Um, you know, violently toxic chemicals in, in our, in our beverages and then just hope that, you know, you, somebody won't drink them or feed them to somebody else. I mean, I, I mean, it's just, I can't even, you know, you can't even, you struggle to come up with a similar example because it's such an obscenely uh, sort of obvious case, which I think, which is what these kids in Florida are pointing to so well uh, uh, in their, in their, uh, you know, passion and pleas. But I should say, I want to finish up with one thing and get your take on this. One of the fears, I think, of, of the trajectories, the political trajectories uh, that these kids are uh, heroically, uh, you know, uh, contributing to perhaps contradictorily and tragically could be that this emboldens and strengthens the uh, neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party. Because those who who don't say, think about it, before we do something, those who just say we need to act now are acting on the basis of policies that are sort of ready-made and handcrafted by that neoliberal triangulationist wing of the Democratic Party. What do you make of that uh, criticism? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that there's a real danger of looking at guns as the, and the problem of violence in the United States more uh, of gun violence more broadly in the United States as a narrowly technocratic issue that only pertains to to guns and that can be uh agreed that can be solved by you know through through bipartisan solutions and that will will miss the way that gun culture is deeply embedded in a broader culture of violence most emphatically supported by the right wing in this country, whether it has to do with militarism or mass incarceration or the economic immiseration that is leading a record number of white Americans to die early deaths from deaths of despair, whether it be from suicide or very much relatedly opioid overdoses. Right. Like this is all, 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 all one big uh, bushel of American horror shows. And, um, I think it while there certainly are some basic technocratic measures around things like 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 assault weapons that we're not going to be entirely we're not going to get the results that we we want if we don't look at it in a more holistic way. That's one risk. The other risk is if we go down the path that we've been down before, which is finding bipartisan consensus in terms of of of. of cracking down on the bat quote unquote bad guys with guns the criminals with the guns then we're going to reverse modest recent gains made in decreasing the prison population in this country 
Um, and Wayne LaPierre would be fine with that. He recently said the solution to this problem is to, quote, enforce the federal gun laws against every criminal thug on the street. Jesus. And we know who that Unreal. is. Well, we know exactly who that is, right? The, the quote unquote bad guys, right? Not much of a dog whistle there. That's pretty overt, I would say. But hey, Daniel, it's almost like, uh, you know, you, I just I was thinking when you were saying, saying, yeah, it's almost like our political ideology is is really coherent and like organically, uh, you know, uh, linked, uh, you know, in that respect, wouldn't you say? It's almost like we know, we know what the fuck we're talking about here. <laughs> I, I, I uh, operate under the illusion that that is the case. Right. I mean, your, your piece uh, for in, the, in These Times will be out by the time uh, this airs. Uh, don't have a title for it yet. I presume the editors are working it up. But I, I, I propose the meaning of, uh, uh, you know, guns or something like that. Let's get real like a hoity-toity, like French. I, I want you to like in a smoking jacket and a pipe talking really smugly about like theory and society. Uh, can, can you do that for me? Are you, by smoking jacket, is that the jacket someone that I wear like while well, – with like yeah, a, yeah, with, yeah. With like, like, with, like a, a, with like a gravity bong, or yeah, surrounded by uh, so leather bound books. Okay, surrounded um, by leather bound books. Uh, you know, I, whatever. This piece is going to be out by the time this airs. We're going to head on over to the B side to talk more explicitly about some of the implications of this debate uh, for my patrons. Head over to www.patreon.com slash dead pundits and join the dead pundit society to have access to that b-side it will be dropping a couple of days after this airs for the patrons so uh check him out on in these times uh that'll be online very soon check out his piece a better gun control that was in jacobin magazine uh, a while back i'll put that in the show notes it's highly relevant uh daniel denver host of the dig thanks for joining us on the dead pundit society thanks for having me Oh, this you crazy mother...